Well, good morning, Trinity. For those of you who I have not met yet, my name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. This is a rare event when they give me the microphone instead of strapping it to my head. Because of my Italianness, I tend to like this, and you can't hear it. It goes in and out. So I... Right, I understand, right? So I promised Jim that I will hold this as close to my mouth as I possibly could. I am not preaching today, but I have the distinct, <laughs> well, wait till you hear who is. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing who will be. But first, can we just give a round of applause to Mark Ray for last week's message? How fun was that? Three, three generations of Rays up here on the stage. Evan, Mark, and then, of course, Pastor uh, George giving the benediction at the end. A really special moment. Um, well, again, I have the, uh, the, the distinct uh, pleasure of introducing to you today, not a guest at Trinity. Uh, the Lorenz family has been uh, at Trinity calling it home for a while now. If you haven't met Jason yet in person, you know him by association. Uh, his wife, Robin, has been doing a wonderful job leading us uh, the last few weeks in worship uh, together. They uh, parent uh, Judah and Peter, one of whom you will hear from very shortly. Uh, but to give you some more background on Jason, uh, Jason is a teacher over at Covenant Christian Academy. He teaches uh, Bible in our upper school. He is also the girls' varsity volleyball coach. He also is a professor at Gordon College, uh, but also the chaplain and director of spiritual formation at Covenant Christian Academy, making sure that every single thing we do is bathed in making sure we're meeting the students where they're at and taking them to their next step in their journey with Jesus. Um, that is what he does, but let me tell you who he is. Jason is a theologian. He is a lover, a student of the Word of God. Jason is first and foremost a child of God. As I said, he is a husband. He is a father. He's become a dear brother to me. He's mentored me in ways that he doesn't even know. Uh, and I know that we are all in for a treat today, so would you join me in welcoming Jason. Jason, the pulpit is yours. <laughs> Thanks, David. <laughs> well, good morning. Wow, I'm so grateful and honored to be here with all of you. You actually stole a good amount of what I was going to say to introduce myself, so I don't have to say any of that now. <laughs> Let's just dig right in. We've been in Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians this summer. And last week, Mark gave us a great sermon from Ephesians chapter 4, the first 16 verses. And in that sermon, he helped us understand the what of our calling, the what of our calling, that we are a people who are unified, blessed, and growing together so that we might be the body of Christ in the world. This morning, Paul turns our attention in the next verses in chapter 4 of Ephesians to the how. If we know what our calling is, well, how do we live it out? Or as he says in chapter 4, verse 1, how do we live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received? And so with that as our context, I'm going to take a page out of the Ray playbook, and I'm going to have my older son, Judah, uh, who is going to read the scripture for us. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 2. Judah will be reading from the English Standard Version. You're welcome to follow along in Ephesians 4 in your pewback Bibles, but they'll be slightly different, and the text will also be on the screen. So Judah, go ahead. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you have learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up, what fits each occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Would you please pray with me? God, we are grateful that we have your word. Lord, you're so generous in that you've spoken to us and in ways that we can understand. So God, we ask you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Would the eyes of our hearts be enlightened this morning? We ask, Lord, that you would renew our minds so that we would think as you think. You would help us see things the way you see them. God, we ask that you would speak to us now. Anything that is only of me, would you let it fall to the ground? But God, if it is of you, would what you say get planted deeply, deeply into our hearts and our minds and our souls so that we would be changed and made more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this passage that Judy did an awesome job reading that. This passage is all about the how. How do we live in a manner worthy of our calling? Or as Paul says it very literally, how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Now, the spoiler is that Paul gave us the answer. It was in the last verse that Judah read. Chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? We walk in love. We walk in Christ-like love. But, and this is really important, Paul purposefully waits until chapter 5, verse 2 to say that. He does this because what he teaches in between is crucial for our ability to carry out that command to walk in love. We will not be able to walk in love as Christ does, individually or collectively as his body, 
without what he reveals to us in these verses in chapter 4. Specifically, what we're about to see is that in order to walk in love, we need to have our hearts and our minds made new. We're going to move through this passage in three sections. First, in verses 17 through 24, we're going to learn that in order to walk in love, we need renewed vision. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we might see ourselves as God sees us. Second, in verses 25 through 32, we'll learn that in order to walk in love, we need our minds renewed. As Paul says, we need the spirit of our minds renewed so that we will understand that obeying God's commands is actually the fullest and freest way to live a full life. And third, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we're going to learn that walking in love requires that our memory gets renewed. If we want to walk in love, we need to remember the love that Christ has shown us. So let's dive in. First point, to walk in love, we need renewed vision. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. Paul is writing this letter to a relatively new church community, and they're struggling with a normal struggle among really all Christians, but particularly new Christians. And it's this, they have a new identity in Christ, but they have this old way they used to live. How do those go together? Do those go together at all? What Paul is addressing is that while they have this new self that they're intended to live out, they've still been living like they belong to the world. And so Paul uses some vivid imagery here in verses 17 through 24 to ensure that we don't miss his point, which is that we need to see ourselves as God sees us. So he says in verse 17 through 19, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What I want to notice is the logic of these verses goes from head to heart to habits. Head to heart to habits. First, Paul addresses our head or our mind, and he says, walking in the futility of our minds, darkened in our understanding, and alienated from the life of God because of our ignorance. So there's a problem in our, in our minds. But second, Paul then addresses the heart, and he says, it is our hardness of heart that keeps our minds darkened, alienated, ignorant. And so that means that the heart needs to be dealt with so that the mind can be dealt with, so that then our habits can be dealt with, which is what he addresses third when he says, in our habits, we become callous and we give ourselves up. Now, when I learned how to play guitar, I play a little bit of guitar, I first hated it because of the calluses that I needed to form on my fingers. And so as I was practicing the different chord formations with my left hand, the strings would just cut into my fingers. It was so uncomfortable. However, as I played more and more and as I practiced more and more, I started to build up calluses on my fingers so that over time I could play longer, I could play harder, and I would feel less discomfort. You see, calluses build up over time through exposure so that we feel less. Now, calluses are good for playing guitar, but they're not so good when it's your heart that's getting calloused. 
What Paul says here is that we become calloused as we give ourselves over to pursuing sensual and impure things, things that at first we probably feel some discomfort at doing because we know they're not quite right. But over time, as we start to practice them more and more, as they become habitual, we lose that sense of discomfort, and along with it, we lose most sense of feeling altogether. And then as we practice those things, because our heart is hardened, our heart is hardened and our mind is darkened, we don't know where else to turn. No matter how much we pursue them, they don't satisfy. They're like the endless scroll on most of our social media apps. You can sit there for hours, and when you end, you're no better off than when you began. That's to be calloused. But because our heart is hardened and our mind is darkened, we can't see another way. And so what do we do? We become greedy, and we say, well, I just have to do it more. I need more of this. That'll solve my problem. But no matter how much I scroll or no matter how much I pursue the sensual or impure things of this life, they never satisfy If insanity, by definition, is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result, then if we live this way, we have found ourselves on a hamster wheel of insanity, running and running and running and running after the same things, hoping that one day, maybe they'll change and actually fill us up. The writer C.S. Lewis, in a famous passage from an essay called The Weight of Glory, wrote this. He said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis's point, which I believe to be an echo of Paul's point here in Ephesians 4, is simple. When we don't have a vision, a vision for our life, what our life is about that is good and is beautiful and is true, We settle for whatever's right in front of us, anything that we think might be an easy ticket to a little taste of happiness. But once you come to know Christ, you don't need to settle anymore. You no longer need to keep feeding behaviors and habits that masquerade as being life-giving, but in reality are anesthetizing you to living life that is really life. But this is the question then. What are those habits in your life? Have you allowed little traces of the old self to linger? Do you still keep it like that old shirt in your closet that you just don't want to throw away? And every once in a while you pull it back out. Maybe when no one's looking, you just wear it around and it feels kind of comfy. Then you put it back in. What is that? What's the endless scroll that you turn to? I'm not going to answer that for you, but you need to start thinking about that. Because what Paul tells us to do next is to put that away, because that's not how you learn Christ. Verses 20 through 24, assuming you have heard about Christ and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You no longer need to run after things that Pastor David is fond of saying, always over-promise and always under-deliver. You don't need to go after them anymore. The way of God is different. God sees you, not as you were, but as who he has made you in Christ. 
This means, according to these verses, that you are a new person created after God's likeness to shine with his righteousness and his holiness. The way God sees you doesn't contain any of those words from the previous sentences. Futility, darkness, alienation, ignorance, hardness of heart, callousness. The truth of who you are is in Christ, Paul says in verse 21. So you no longer need to live a life in futility or in darkness because Christ says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. You don't need to live in alienation from God or ignorant to who he is or who he's made you to be because again, Christ says, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You no longer need to live with a hard and calloused heart because Christ says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my Holy Spirit within you so that you will know me and love me and obey me. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Friends, Christ is better. He's just better. He's better than the deceitful desires and anesthetizing behaviors of your former way of life. He is better than mud pies. He is better than any binge, any trip, or any endless, hopeless scroll. And so I urge you with Paul, I urge you, do not walk in that way of life anymore. It's time for you to take that old garment and throw it away and replace it with the fine new linen that is yours in heaven because you are a child of God. God has known you from before the foundations of the world, and he loves you. You in your new self are created after the likeness of God so that you might radiate his righteousness and his holiness like a full moon on a winter night that pierces through the darkness and shines with the glory of the sun. That is who you are. That is who you are. His vision for your life is beautiful and it is good. Because his vision for you is that you would know and you would trust and you would become more like Jesus. One more thing on this, and then we move to point two. Earlier in chapter two, Paul in chapter two, verse 10, wrote this. He said, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's that word again, walk. You are God's workmanship, Paul writes, which can be translated masterpiece. The Greek word here is poema, which is where we get the word poem from. So let's bring that home. You're God's poetry. You're God's composition. You're God's melody. You are God's magnum opus. You need a renewed vision. So do I. If we're going to live in a manner of our calling, if we're going to walk in the way of love. Like Da Vinci's Mona Lisa or Michelangelo's David, the magnificence of the artwork is going to reveal the brilliance of the artist. That's what you're made for, to shine brightly so that the glory of God might be seen in you. You have been made to resemble the king of all kings. Point two, having received renewed vision from God to see ourselves as he sees us, the second thing we need to walk in love is we need renewed minds. We need to think like he does. And specifically, we need renewed minds to understand that obeying his commands is the best choice we can make if we want to live a full life. 
In verses 25 through 32, Paul gives the Ephesians a variety of instructions for how they ought to live. I'd like to read these with you again, and then we're going to unpack them just a bit. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up, what fits each occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now first, I have to admit, this is not the list I thought we were going to get. In thinking about the habits and behaviors that we need to shed, I was expecting the A list of sins. I was expecting immorality, idolatry, drunkenness, forms of violence, oppression, things like that, which God, Paul, does get to, but in chapters 5 and 6. So why does he start here? He draws our attention to falsehood. He draws our attention. Wow. I'm just, I was like floored by this. He draws our attention to anger and to theft and to corrupting talk. I was blown away by this because Paul is raising our awareness to the truth here that the most insidious sins in the Christian life aren't always the public ones, but they always tear the community apart. These are the sins that tear us apart, you and me. But before we get to that, there's one more thing that Paul is doing here that I don't think he meant to, but the Holy Spirit is wise. Read that list again. Falsehood, anger, theft, corrupting talk. Is this not a message for 21st century culture in America right now? Right now. Are these not the things that have caused tremendous division? both in our society and perhaps even in our neighborhoods, hopefully not, but perhaps even in our homes. Hopefully not, but perhaps even in our church. Paul says we have to root out that which would divide us. Or to put it a little bit differently, if we hope to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to be united, blessed, and growing as the body of Christ, like Mark preached last week, then we cannot, we must not, participate in behaviors and attitudes that have defined the culture around us and have divided it. It cannot be. Second, second, I want to take a bird's eye view for just a moment with you. Because in this passage, what else I think we see is that Paul doesn't just tell us what to do. He also gives us a way to think about God's commands. Now, what do I mean by that? A common objection to the moral standards that come in the Bible, that God has spoken. And this is an objection that is both coming from outside the church and coming from inside the church. The common objection is that God's commands are like a straitjacket. They restrict me from using my freedom the way I want and getting the life that I deserve. But what Paul shows us in these verses is that far from being burdensome or restrictive, God's commands serve the purpose of liberating us from lies, behaviors, and habits that we don't want defining our life anyway. 
Let's dig into that a little bit. Verse 25 sets the tone. Paul writes, therefore, because you are made after the likeness of God, because you're made to shine with his radiance, uh, with the radiance of his righteousness and his holiness, having put away falsehood, speak the truth to each other. Speak the truth to your neighbor. In other words, now that you know the truth of how God sees you, now that you have your vision renewed, the eyes of your hearts have been enlightened, make sure you reinforce that truth with one another. Now, does that sound restrictive? No. That sounds like just the opposite. I don't want the deceitful desires of my old self to come creeping back in. I threw out that shirt. I don't want it back. As members of the body of Christ, unified, blessed, and growing together, it's our privilege, our privilege and our freedom to speak the truth to one another of who God is for us and who we are in Him. But friends, I have to ask, how much time do we make for this? We do this here, and one of the blessings that my family has experienced over the past time we've been here at Trinity is the heart of this church to worship the Lord and to sit under the authority of His Word in this space. It has been such a blessing. But the question is, how do we move from Sunday morning to Sunday afternoon to Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and the rest of the week? When are you having those conversations with your brother or your sister in your home, with the friends that you walk alongside with as you follow Christ? Are you speaking the truth to each other? I encourage you, make more time for it. It will benefit you, number one, but number two, it will knit us together in a way that shines as a light in the midst of the darkness of a world that is so divided. Speak the truth to one another, friends. This command from God to speak truth, therefore, is no burden at all. In fact, it's something different. This command proves that when God gives his law, he doesn't give his law so that we can prove ourselves to him. God gives his law to prove his goodness to us. Too often we can fall into the trap of believing that I have to do enough good things so that God will make me new. I have to sort of do the prerequisite stuff so that I can access that vision to be made after the likeness of God. But that's not the way it is. The law wasn't given so that you would prove yourself to God. The law was given so that God would prove his goodness to you, that he knows what's best for you. In verses 26 and 27, God says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This implies that our anger can't be left to fester. Instead, it should motivate us to pursue healing. Anger like pain should trigger us to say, whoa, something isn't right, it needs to get fixed. And so, how often when I get angry do I turn to pray? Do I ask forgiveness? Or do I go and seek out that conversation that I need to have, honestly, but gently with the person where the anger, where the relationship with the anger resides. I have to have that conversation, right? Because if I don't, a root of bitterness is going to start to grow, and then we divide, and then there's poison in the community. Friends, isn't that what you want, though? It's what I want. I don't, I don't want to have anger spill over from one area of my life into another. I don't want to go to bed angry. I don't want that pit in my stomach that is there when I've been angry and I stay angry and I haven't dealt with it. The command of God here is not burdensome. It's not restrictive. It is the best possible thing for you. Be angry, but don't sin. 
let that anger motivate you to pursue the healing that it is showing you that you need. The devil wants you to stay alone in your anger, but I don't want to stay there, and God certainly doesn't want you there. God's commands are not restrictive. They're more like spiritual antibodies that fight off infectious diseases that seek to infect our hearts. In verse 28, God says, don't steal, but do honest work. This is pretty straightforward, right? This is one of the Ten Commandments. I have to tell a story about this, and this is going to impugn myself slightly about something I did at Covenant. A few years back, sorry, sorry, David. Um, a few years back, um, I found a piece of clothing in the lost and found at, at Covenant Christian Academy where I work. And now, I realize the moral code around lost and found protocol is very gray. It's a gray area. Okay, we have to, we have to name that first. All right, but all right, it's a gray area. Nonetheless, I went to the lost and found, and I found this official NBA-licensed Nice half zip pullover Celtics shirt, and it was right in my size. Okay. Now, again, it's a gray area, it's a gray area, but, but I took it. I justified to myself, okay, it's been sitting here for several months, no one's taken it, it's fine, but it wasn't the end of the year. Do you think I wore it to school? Not a chance. Because deep down lurking, right, if I have ill-gotten gains, I don't free, feel free to show them. Or, as the text continues to say, I don't feel free to use them in a way that benefits others. Ill-gotten gains I keep for myself. Ill-gotten gains I keep for myself. But if I'm doing honest labor, not only do I have pride in the work that I'm doing, but I now have freedom to be generous, which is what I want to do as a human being because I don't want to only be loved, I also want to love. That's how you're made. That's how I'm made too. So the call here, this command, is not just don't steal. It's do you have a vision for a generous life? God does, and it's for you. His commands are not burdensome. His commands are not restrictive. As the psalmist says, in keeping them, there is great reward. Finally, in verse 29, God tells us not to use corrupting speech. But instead, he says to speak in ways that will build others up. Now, like Thor's hammer, I'm a Marvel fan, like Thor's hammer, our words wield great power, to destroy worlds or to build them. To destroy worlds or to build them. By our words, we can, according to verses 29 and 30, grieve God's Holy Spirit who lives within us as the guarantee of our heavenly inheritance. With our words, we can grieve him. Or with our words, we can be a conduit for the heavenly grace of God to meet those who are around us. So I have to ask you, as I had to ask myself this week, as a citizen of heaven living in this world, which is what you are, would you rather have your words be a shroud that hides the beauty of heaven? Or do you want your words to be like the stars that penetrate the darkness and bring glimpses of heaven to earth? What do you want your words to be? If you follow the commandment of God, it's the best possible vision. God's commands are not given so that we might be restrained. They are given so that we might be set free. 
They are given so that when we keep them, we will have the best possible way forward to live the life that is truly life. Paul elaborates on the speech that we use then in verses 31 and 32. With our words, he says, we can bring bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. All of these, by the way, are communal. All of these you can sort of have on your own, but you really need other people to express these. Which means that by our words, we can tear apart this community. Again, we have power to build worlds or to destroy them. We can bring bitterness, wrath, clamor, anger, slander, malice, and each of these, in the moment that we speak them, either in person or especially online, especially online, if we speak in that way, it might make us feel important or a little bit powerful or perhaps self-righteous. But after a moment, that feeling goes away. And what are you left with? You're left with a war with other people and a war in your own heart. By contrast with our words, verse 32, we also can speak kindness. We can be tender-hearted, and we can forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. Friends, do you want to live in wartime, or do you want to live in peacetime? By your words, you can make war or you can make peace right here. You can make war or you can make peace as you go home, when you go online, in your friendships, in your neighborhoods, You can be a peacemaker, and blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, but you also can make war. Here again, we find that God's commands are not a straitjacket. They're not restrictive. Instead, God's commands are helping us live our fullest life, not our best life to borrow from a health and wealth idea. It's your fullest life. The full life isn't easy, but it is full because Jesus is there. God's commands are sort of like the rules that govern a soccer game. I love coaching and playing soccer. They serve to protect the players from injury, and they also empower the players to play the beautiful game in a beautiful way. That's the vision. And so we don't only need renewed vision for who God sees us as, we also need our minds renewed so that we recognize that when he asks us to do something, it is not a burden, it is a gift. He is saying, go and as you obey, see how good my vision is for your life. So point one, we need renewed vision. Point two, we need renewed minds. Point three, to bring us home, we need renewed memories. In order to walk in love, we need renewed memory of the, of the love of Christ because with that renewed memory, we might be able to then freely and confidently love others. Paul finishes chapter four in verse 32 this way and then continues into chapter five. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted." forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, in these verses, Paul gives us three reminders of the love of Christ that we've already received. Three ways to renew our memory. First, God has forgiven us in Christ. Second, God has adopted us as his children and has made us co-inheritors of heaven with Jesus. Third, God in Christ has laid down his own life for us. Three memories of the love of God. Three renewals so that our memory has his love fresh 
Well, why do we need that? First, because without the memory of Christ's love, we won't define love well. We'll mess it up. Now, I realize that we have dozens of Disney animated movies, and we have an endless scroll of Instagram quotes that'll try to tell us what true love is. Princess Bride, okay. I actually really like that movie. But nothing that we find in this world can hold a candle to the definition that we get from the example of Jesus. Nothing comes close. You have to remember what Jesus has done for you first if you're going to walk in love yourself. Second, the memory of the love of Christ actually confirms that we can trust all that we've just talked about. That vision that you are made after the likeness of God to shine with his righteousness and holiness, that you're made to do the commandments of God not because they're a burden but because they're the best possible life you could live, well, that might just seem like pie in the sky. You may be like, nah, that, no, I don't think so. Until you meet the God who died for you. Until you see Jesus on the cross and you see that the grave didn't hold him. That the, the greatest version of futility, death, could not stop him. He rose. His love is so great for you that he is willing to go all the way to the grave and back and endure every layer of temptation and never give in so that you might be empowered, so that you might know that he knows the way as the trailblazer for your faith. He knows the way that you need to go. Look to him on the cross and you'll be reminded that you can trust him. So first, you need the love of Christ in your mind, in your memory, so that you'll define love rightly. Second, you need the love of Christ in your memory so that you'll trust that his vision for you is good. And then finally, Paul knows that we need the memory of, love, of the love of Christ renewed in our, in our minds because it's only when I know I'm loved and deeply loved that I feel free and empowered to go and love others. If I'm always insecure and searching for the love that I need, that's all I'm thinking about. And I become enslaved to my own self-concern. Friends, the love of Christ, when it seeps into your memory and your heart and your mind, it liberates you from needing to think about yourself all day long. It is actually freeing to think about how can I take the blessings I have been given by God and bless others with them, which is how we walk in love. Friends, in order to walk in love, to conclude, we need renewed vision. You need to know who you are, who I am in Christ No longer do you need to live with that old vision of of your life. God doesn't see you that way. He sees you holy, a child of his in heaven forever. Second, you need renewed minds so that when you are called to obey the commandments of God, you will know that in doing so, you will experience freedom and joy. And thirdly, you need a renewed memory. Memory of the love of Christ so that knowing he loves you so much that he would die for you, you will experience the freedom of being able to love other people. And this last point leads us right here. In just a moment, we're going to go to the table. And at the table, we will be invited to eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus. Take that invitation. Take the invitation. This morning, as we take communion together, let your memory be renewed. Be reminded that you are forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. Every sin. Be reminded that you are a child in the family of God and he's already prepared a place for you and that place will never be taken away. 
Be reminded that while you were still a sinner, Paul writes in Romans 5.8, you were alienated from the life of God, you had made yourself an enemy of God, and you had calloused your own heart to Him. Even then, Christ died for you. Be reminded that His love for you today was the same yesterday, and it will be the same tomorrow. Be reminded of the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of the love of Christ when you come to this table so that you might be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that in your word you don't leave us where you found us, but by your word you lead us into a vision that you have for our lives, a vision that we could never have on our own. God, thank you for Jesus who died and rose so that we might have life and have it to the full. Thank you that he is our good shepherd who laid down his life for us, the sheep. Father, help us as we now take this family meal together. Help us to be reminded of the beauty and the depth of your love for us. We thank you and we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.